Good morning from me. My name's Peter. I'm one of the pastors at uh, Restoration Church here. Really good to have you out. Um, here's um, here's the, uh, the warning. This is a Dow one today. Um, what we're looking at today is the uh, section of John where the betrayal of Jesus happens. The interesting thing about betrayal is uh, it's been commercialized. That's the bottom line. If you look at most uh, reality TV shows, they're actually predicated on the idea of betrayal. Uh, you get these people, you put them all together, you have these progressive votes along the way, they talk about the point at which someone flips on everyone else and so the idea is that you can become a friend to people, you can walk alongside them um, and you can, in the end, turn on them and stab them in the back and if you do that, you'll get rewarded with money. Uh, it's, it's an interesting kind of play on it, and in some ways it kind of bears some of the hallmarks of, G, of Judas uh, that we see in the Scriptures, but at the same time it doesn't. And the reason why it doesn't is because everyone knows it's coming. Everyone's playing that game, and uh, in some uh, sense it, it's not a surprise when the person turns. You know, the, um, you know what the last crime that could be someone could be executed for was in Australia treason that's what it was um, and New South Wales was the last jurisdiction where you could be put to death for treason what's what's treason treason's when you turn against your own people you you fight against them or you give information to the detriment of your own people you know, you can go to pretty much every social grouping in our society, in any society, I would say, and no one says betrayal is a good thing. Everyone hates it, even amongst criminal gangs. <laughs> There's something about betrayal that's on a whole another level. It's hugely painful and it's very, very serious. And uh, so for some of you today, as we talk about the betrayal of Jesus, it's probably going to trigger a few things for you because there are a lot of people in the room for which betrayal is a reality. It's, it's happened to you, and maybe not to the extent that it happened to Jesus, but it's going to bear many of the hallmarks of it. And uh, I just want to say that I'm thinking about you, and I've been thinking about you as I've been preparing this. And uh, hang on till the end, because there's a few hope-filled things at the end. I often joke about how uh, preaching is therapy for me, but it's therapy for all of us in a sense, isn't it? Because uh, God doesn't just tell us things about himself. He tells us things about himself that helps us. And uh, that's what I hope will happen today. So if you've got a Bible, love to read the section from John chapter 13. I'd invite you to open that up. John chapter 13, verse 18. I'm not referring to all of you. This is Jesus speaking. I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was, re was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I, I will give this piece of bread 
when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. We're going to look at five things today about this betrayal of Jesus. Here's the first one. And you can see this in verse 18 there, that it was a very, very personal betrayal. And in fact, if you look at this passage of scripture, it is a very, very accurate picture of what betrayal actually is. And what I want to do is show you this scripture alongside the, uh, the section of scripture that, scripture that John's quoting from, from uh, Psalm 41.9. You see verse 18 of chapter 13, I'm not referring to all of you, I know those who I've chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. Look at the verse in verse 9 of chapter 40 uh, of Psalm 41. I mean, hear the pathos in this, the sadness in it. Even, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. Now, I want you to see something here before we go on. And it's actually the two verses before that. And you can go back a little bit before that too, if you want. But look at the two verses before Verse 9, I've included verse 9 on the right-hand side there. Listen to this. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying a vile disease has afflicted him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. You see, that, see what's going on here? This guy has got enemies coming at him. The enemies are coming at him. And then, as if to cap it all off, like the final straw, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. You know, it's not enough that he's got enemies that want the worst for him. But in the midst of it, under the weight of the enemies, what happens is his dear friend turns on him. This is what Jesus is quoting. And, and what John's, sorry, this is what John is quoting about Jesus. And what you can see there is, is that it's a very, very personal betrayal. And who knows this? The, the closer a person is, the more painful the betrayal is, isn't it? You see those contours in the psalm? A close friend, someone I trusted, someone who shared my bread, someone that I let in, they turn on me. And I want you to think for a moment about friendship. You can be friendly to your enemies, but you can't be friends with your enemies. It's just how it works. Uh, you just can't. You, you can't have a close friendship with someone who actively is working against you. You just can't do it because it's the opposite of the way that friendship actually works. Because friendship is about trust. Friendship is about opening yourself up to other people. It's about progressively entrusting the fragile parts of you to the person that you're walking with, to your friend. And I just want to say to you that, that you can and should, and Jesus would have you to be friendly to your enemies, but you can't do friendship with them. It, it just it doesn't work that way. You see, the most personal betrayal 
is betrayal by someone who was once a friend. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You let someone in and they get closer and closer. You trust them. You share your life with them. They get to see and to be close to the fragile parts of you and then they flip on you. They flip on you. And here's the thing. They flip on you when you're not defending yourself. Because when an enemy's coming at you, you've got some fences up, right? But when a friend flips on you, usually you've let them in and there aren't any defences. It's almost as if you've let them on the inside and now they're knifing you. This is what Judas was doing. Judas was on the inside. You know, sometimes we can read uh, scripture and we can read in the Gospels about Judas and you just kind of go, ah, yeah, no, they all picked it. They all knew it was coming. They all knew what he was up to. But you have to remember, they didn't. They didn't see it coming, the disciples. Jesus knew all about it, but they didn't see it coming. You know, the, the gospel writers are writing after the event and they're showing you where the threads run through with Judas. But, but look at who he is. Judas is the group treasurer. He's the guy that gets to handle the money. And he's clearly sitting close enough to Jesus at this meal that Jesus can pass a piece of bread to him while they're reclining. You know, this suggests that Judas actually had a prominent place in the 12. Maybe Judas is literally reclining on one side of Jesus. He was a friend. And that leads us to the next reality about betrayal. The closer they are, the more they hurt. And the more unexpected the betrayal, the more it hurts. And we see this in this passage here with Jesus, that it was a betrayal that no one expected. And this is where uh, the whole metaphor with reality TV shows uh, kind of breaks down. Um, because reality TV shows are really designed for there only to be one winner. And every contestant expects at some point in time, someone's going to flip on them. They're going to betray them. The, the idea behind it is, is it's, it's this, this public showing of the reality that at some point in time, everyone's going to act in their own best interest and turn against their mate. And I just want to say to you, in case we've lost touch with that, this is reality TV shows are not human nature at its finest. Has anyone ever noticed that? They just aren't. And I'm just telling you, I'm getting really sick of them, to be honest. Like some of the stuff that they set up in the shows, I just go, just make something really hard and test people out and do that. Why do you have to set it up all the time so that we're having people turn against each other? This betrayal of, uh, of Jesus was unexpected, totally unexpected actually, by everyone except for Jesus. And you can see pointers to this in the story. Verse 21, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And what's the next verse? His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant, right? They are clueless about what's going to go down with Judas. And then at the end of the story in verse uh, 27, so Jesus told him what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. So Judas goes out possessed by the devil and everyone's thinking, He's going to go and buy some stuff for the festival. 
right? That's what it says there. Or he's going to use some money and go and give it to the poor. They're just completely clueless. No one got it. Now, at this point, some of you might say, well, at least Jesus knew about it. And that is something that, that would have been helpful. Though, how hard is it to wash the feet of someone that you know is going to betray you? How hard would it have been for Jesus to treat Judas lovingly all the way along, along knowing how it was going to play out? And I want to say this to you, Jesus is God. He's fully God, but he's also fully human as well. And despite all of this, I want to, I want to bring something out from this um, about what's going on here. And it, it kind of goes back to the first point that uh, I mentioned this morning. And some of you might go, well, that doesn't entirely apply to Jesus, but I think it mostly does. So uh, here goes. Everyone probably has enemies of some sort. Okay, everyone probably has enemies of some sort. But when a friend betrays you, what it says to you is not only that you can't trust your enemies, you already knew that, but now you can't trust your friend. If you can't trust your enemies and you can't trust your friends, who's left? Just you. Just you. Betrayal is a very lonely place. It's a very lonely place. Anyone know what I'm talking about? It's just you and you can't trust anyone else, not even your friends. This is some kind of description of the place that Jesus is in. And again, you might go, well, he knew all about that stuff. And I would say, yeah, but he's human too. That's what I'd say. You go on to the next passage in uh, John 13, and it, uh, it talks about uh, Peter's denial, you know. And, and it's just this gritty place. And if you hang there long enough, you just go, Jesus is in one heck of a tight place. Not only is one of the inner circle betraying him in the act of doing that, but... We only need to go a few more verses to see that Jesus' own disciples, his friends, the, the ones who have been washed by him and made clean by him, we learned last week, well, they're going to start falling away as well. And, and so you have this pattern with Jesus is people start falling away until there's virtually no one left. And I would just say to you, have you ever felt some of that? You ever felt the loneliness of betrayal? Jesus has. And, and there's, there's hope here that Jesus gets you if you've ever been in that place. Third thing we're going to see in the uh, betrayal passage here in John chapter 13 is that it's actually demonically inspired. It's a demonically inspired betrayal. Here's verse 2, and I skipped over this last week because uh, I wanted to deal with it this week. Um, verse 2 in John chapter 13, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. I want you to see something that goes on in the midst of this betrayal. Uh, and, and what I want you to see is something about how the devil actually works. And you just need to know that in the midst of this betrayal, the devil is 
at work. And, and I, I want to just take a moment to help you to understand the main way that the devil actually works because most of the time when people think about the devil who's this fallen angel is that he's snooping around doing these paranormal things and it's really spooky but most of the way that the devil does his work is very basic very simple and very normal um theologians for 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 years and years have talked about how temptations to sin come from the world the flesh and the devil and for years, I thought it was kind of an either-or situation. Where there's a temptation that comes, and it's either the world or the flesh or the devil. I remember listening, or I might have been reading, a, an article by David Powlison where uh, David Powlison talked about the fact that present in every single temptation is the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're all at work in every single temptation. And I think that makes a whole lot more sense of human experience and scripture to just think that they're all running at the same time in every single temptation that we have. So the question then becomes, well, how does the devil actually work on people? How is he working on Judas here, especially in verse 2 here? Well, I remember hearing a a number of years ago about a a preacher who used this uh, metaphor, this analogy, and it just made complete sense to me. He said this, he said, um, the way that you tune a piano is you hit a tuning fork with the right note on it, and when the string in the piano that needs to be that note is at the right tune, it'll start vibrating with the tuning fork. That's what it'll do. And he went on to say that that this is how the devil works with us. He just is around doing things and he's hitting the tuning fork and seeing if he can get a string in our heart to vibrate with his tune. And I think you can see that in John chapter 13 verse 2 that the devil got alongside Judas and hit a tuning fork and he found a string that would vibrate with his tune. Then it gets a bit more intense after this and it gets a little bit more paranormal to be honest because in verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. That's a bit more paranormal. We're talking about possession, demon possession right now, which is a thing. And you need to know there isn't something magical about the bread. It's just the moment um, that the bread was passed, that it actually happens. You can see from verse 2 that the work had already begun earlier in the night. Um, And then Judas goes out. Now, I want you to notice something here. Um, What is going on in the disciples' group at this point is division, disunity, and betrayal in the group. It's not just about Jesus, it's about everyone else as well. We're not talking about the local Lions Club or Scouts group or Girl Guides. It's Jesus and his disciples. And if we are to be honest and we give ourselves an honest reckoning about this kind of thing, who here knows? You don't have to put your hand up. You can just... You know, in your heart, put your hand up. Who here knows that some of the dirtiest, darkest betrayal, disunity and division happens in the church? Doesn't it? 
wherever there is disunity, division, and betrayal in the church, you can expect the devil will be not too far away. Now, there can be lots of reasons for disunity and division, and some of them are good. Sometimes there's differences in theological understanding and theological beliefs, and there's, there's differences that we need to divide over. There's no question about that. Sometimes there's ministry practice things, all right? I think most of the division that happens in churches is not mainly about theological beliefs. It's about how people think ministry should happen which is why we've got a ministry philosophy document because we want to be upfront with you about how we do ministry. So if you come along and you say, I think you should do it another way, we'd say, well, that's fine. You can have that opinion and that way might actually work, but we're just not doing it here. So either you need to just let that one go or there'll be another church that will fit in with your ministry philosophy. And that's okay. That's okay. Sometimes even in the church, there's going to be people who are unrepentant sinners in a particular area and we need to divide from them but I want to say this to you, you don't have to go to war against people. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You've been in a church, you've been in a Christian organisation and people went to war against each other. It's like, what are we doing this for? I'm not saying that there aren't times where you'll need to divide from other people, but you just don't have to go to war against them. You can still be for them. You can disagree and not work together because of a theological difference, because of a ministry philosophy difference, because of unrepentant sin, but you don't have to go to war against people. You don't have to wish for their downfall and work in that direction. Now, let me give you a... um, I'm a bit passionate about this, right? Because the the peace and the prosperity and the restoration of all of you depends upon this, okay? And I'm telling you that if you divide and cause disunity, be careful saying this, this is not in my notes, right? And you go to war against people in this church, the elders are going to be talking to you, all right? Because we're not doing that. And I'm not saying, some of you go, oh, you're a cult there, all right? We're not a cult. We're saying that there's room to disagree, but there's no room for you to go to war against each other. No room. Now, let me give you an example. And this is the most quoted scripture, I think, in terms of unrepentance in the church and sin in the church. And it's Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 to 17. If your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, what do you do? Well, you give it to them, right? You plot their downfall. That's what you do. You you rejoice when they get whacked. No, Jesus says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And now some people in the church might think, well, isn't that the same thing? And I'd say to you, no, because I'd ask you the question, how did Jesus treat tax collectors and pagans? You know the answer. He disagrees with them, but he doesn't go to war with them. 
And here's just a little rabbit trail for us to go down because we're just having fun today. Everyone having fun? This is good. So you're all going, I'm so glad I came to church today. Disunity comes naturally to fallen people. If you do nothing in the church, you know what you get? Disunity. That's what you get because that's what sin is and that's actually what pride is. You just get disunity. And you need to know that the devil's very active in this space, and I don't mean in a paranormal way. But you just need to know that if there's good things happening and people are becoming Christians and people are being restored, like what's happening in Restoration Church at the moment, the devil's getting around with his tuning fork and he's hitting it against things to see if he can get a string to resonate with it in your heart. And so you have to be on your guard. If you do nothing in terms of preserving unity, you'll end up with disunity. That's how it works. It's just how sin and pride work because unity is hard won. Always it's hard won. And so you know what this means is that we all, we all, y'all, do you like that? Just saying that for the Americans. It was a very bad version. We, we all need to defend fight for and work for the unity in this church. It's not just the elders' job. It's not just the deacons and the elders' job. It's not the community group leaders, the deacons and the elders' job. It's all of our jobs to work for that. Let's move back to the story. Um, I'll see the fourth... fourth... uh, Think about this betrayal today. We see actually that it's a very troubling betrayal. Um, first sign of this is actually verse 19 there. I'm telling you now before it happens, Jesus says, so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. Now, the first part that is troubling about the betrayal is the effect that it's going to have on the disciples because they're completely clueless about this whole thing. And when the news breaks in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas comes with the soldiers, it's going to be a head spinner. It's going to be huge. And, and you can get some of this, right, uh, if you've been betrayed before, because you, you, you just know the experience of it turning the world upside down. Everything just gets messed up. And what you thought was a thing wasn't. And then you start, in your mind, you start tracking back through all the things that happened, like for six to nine months before that, and go, well, what was that? Was that... Was that when it started? Is that when they flipped on me back then or is it just up here? You know, everything isn't as it seems anymore after the betrayal and now you're just totally confused. And that that was what it was going to be like for the disciples. And and it it wasn't going to be any other way, but what we see in this passage in John 13 is that it wasn't just the disciples that were troubled by it all, it was Jesus too. You know, and yet Jesus is fully God and fully man. And so you just got to preserve and defend the fact that even though he's God and he knows what's going on, he's a human, he's fully human in the midst of that as well. And just appreciate how he walks through things. You can see this trouble for Jesus in the midst of it. Um, in 20, verse 21 there, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. 
What's, what's he saying? Uh, Jesus became deeply upset. Trouble. The stormy sea. It's actually the same Greek word in uh, chapter 13 that was used to describe Jesus' uh, depth of trouble as he was standing in front of the tomb of Lazarus just a little while ago. Disturbed and laced with anger. <laughs> Remember those who were here when we we're preaching through when I was preaching through uh, the story about Lazarus is that this Greek word has a sense of a snorting horse, an angry snorting horse. And, and I would just say to you, how, how could this not be the case in the presence of a betrayer? Do you get this? Jesus doesn't skate through unaffected. unaffected. Imagine if Jesus just skated through unaffected. It would be hard to see him of help to us, wouldn't it? So you get in the middle of a betrayal situation and, and uh, you, you kind of look to John 13 and he was completely unaffected. He just kind of soared through there, you know, like at 30,000 feet. Just go, oh, we can't really talk to him about it. But he doesn't, all right? It messes with him and he feels anger in the presence of a betrayer. Now, it's always risky to affirm anger, right? Because most anger is not righteous anger. Um, but I would say this. I, I think there's an appropriateness to anger in the presence of a betrayer. Now, whether you play that out well or not, that's a whole other situation. But if you're in the midst of someone who's betraying, betraying you and you don't feel anger, I, I, I think that there's a problem with that because it's an anger-inspiring event, a betrayal. That's what it is. And the good news about uh, Jesus being in the presence of a, a betrayer and his response to it is that it kind of validates... Um, the way that we feel when people betray us. Kind of gives us permission a bit. But I just want to say this. Um, as fallen people, even though Jesus' anger in the midst of this gives some kind of validity to the experiences that we have, and I think it's very helpful. It's very helpful for us to talk with him about it and feel like he understands us. We don't have the luxury as fallen people of going untethered in our anger. We just don't. Why? Because the story of humanity is that we are all betrayers. That's why. Uh, Judas is the archetypal betrayer. The one who carried on the same type of preference of self to God that began it all in the Garden of Eden. You know, you might be sitting there and you go, sure. Um, you might think that you would have done better than Judas. I don't know. Maybe you would have. Maybe you wouldn't have done it. I don't know. But the seed for this kind of acting, the turning over of God in preference to ourselves, is something that runs in all of our fallen DNA, doesn't it? 
So collectively, and even in some senses, individually, we've all done it to Jesus. We were all, as humanity, we were all part of God's family in the very beginning, you remember? And we turned from him and we became his enemies. And this whole fallen world is in a state of rebellion against God. It's, it's actually in a treasonous state. That's the nature of being fallen. Fallen humanity fights against God. It prefers self and their own agenda to God himself. And some of you might, even at this point, you might still be going, yeah, but I don't think I'd be a betrayer. And I go, well, you've probably been a denier. So if, if John doesn't catch it in this section of John 13, he's probably going to catch it in the next one where he talks about Peter denying Jesus. Jesus got betrayed. He can and he is deeply moved and troubled, angry even in the midst of it. And I would just say to you, you can talk to him about the betrayals which have happened to you because he gets it. Even as you confess your denials of him and your betrayal of him. You do both of those things. One doesn't cancel out the other, just do both of them. Here's where we're going to finish today. Darkness. Verse 30, there's a statement made right at the end of this little section by John. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. And we finish here. And it feels a bit like Psalm 88, if you've ever read it. It's depressing. <laughs> and there's, it doesn't end well. It just ends. You just go, really? Is that it? Like every other psalm has got a nice little ending to it. And, and it's just dark. Uh, and, and it feels like there's no hope at the end. I think there's more to it than, than a surface level read, but, but you get what I'm saying. And what we've got here in this story is just a, it's just, it's just a dark ending. You know, and I think that, um, that John is speaking of more than just physical darkness here. He's, he's pointing to something else as well. Um, because... Jesus is the light of the world. And who just left? Someone who wants to snuff it out. That's who just left. Someone who wants to suffocate the light. Someone who wants to cover it up. Someone who wants to overcome the light. And it does feel pretty dark. But... Before I end this morning, I want, I want you to see this. It's not <laughs> completely dark. And some of you might remember that there's been a couple of places through John that we've covered already where Jesus goes, the lights are going to go out one, one, at some point in time. You remember these ones? The light's going to go out and it's going to be completely dark. And he was talking about between when he dies and when he resurrects on the, on the third day. And he's saying, the lights are going to go out. They get to work while the light's still here. Well, the reality is, even in the midst of this kind of the start of the betrayal by Judas, the light is still there, right? Jesus is still there. He hasn't been executed yet. So we could expect to find some little bits of light along the way in this story because he's still around, all right? This is, this is where I'm going with this last point. So what are we seeing here? What, well, I think we see three shafts of light here in the midst of this dark place. Here's the first one. 
Jesus knew he would be betrayed. This is grounding, settling stuff. He's on it. He's across it. And everyone else is clueless about it. And this is the case about pretty much every situation that Jesus faces. He's in control even as he's being directly affected by the thing that's happening. And you know, the the reality for us is things come along and they bump into us and we lose our minds, don't we? We lose our minds and we just go, I cannot work out what's going on. Well, it's never like that with Jesus. He always understands. He's well aware of what's coming for him and he's well aware of what's coming for you. Doesn't surprise him. And that should give you great hope. There's nothing that will come up for you that's a surprise for him. Nothing in his realm and nothing in yours, even though those are basically the same. Which naturally feeds into the second shaft of light that we see in this passage. And it's, it's this one. Um, Jesus had a plan to get his disciples through it. You see that? Verse 19. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. Now, there is nothing more destabilizing than betrayal. And as I said before, everything you thought was a certain way gets upended at that point in time and starts to run in a different direction. In the midst of this, even before this, Jesus is across it. He knows what's going to happen and he's already steering the ship. He's anchoring the disciples even when they don't have a clue. And that's incredible. And I want you to notice something about this scripture. How is Jesus anchoring the disciples for the betrayal that's going to come, that's going to make their heads spin? Well, he's anchoring them to himself. Do you see it up there? He's telling them before it happens so that they will see who he truly is when it does happen. And who is he? Well, here's another I am statement, which is a, speaks to Jesus' divinity, him being God. He's telling them in advance so they would know he is divine and can trust him. In a sense, I think what he's doing is he's joining them to himself even when they have no idea about the destabilization that's about to happen to them. Because in the midst of the betrayal, when their heads are spinning... In the Garden of Gethsemane, when someone runs off naked, they're supposed to remember he said that would happen. And when he said it would happen, it's a prophecy about something coming true which points to the fact that he's divine, he's God, and you can trust in him. Now, let me uh, get just a little personal with you now. If you've been betrayed, Jesus has a plan to get you through the betrayal, okay? And he didn't have to scratch it up after it happened. It's like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen in advance and he's made preparations to get you through the betrayal. And his preparations to get you through the betrayal are going to be similar to this one where he's saying, you need to look back to me. You need to turn back to me. Your anchor is going to be the person of Jesus. That's what it is. 
two shafts of light already, all right? But there's, there's three. I had to get three in because I got five sermon points today. There's a joke. See this one? This pops out for the first time. John 13, 22 to 24, his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant, one of them the disciple whom Jesus loved. You can see the scene here, right? The disciples don't know who the betrayer was. The disciple who Jesus loved is probably next to Jesus, probably leaning on him. Peter says to him, this one, ask him who it is, and then the rest of the story goes on. Now, that's an interesting title, isn't it? The disciple who Jesus loved. It's actually a title that John uses for this particular disciple uh, a number of times through the rest of the book. But this is the first time that we actually see it. Now, here's, here's the question. Who's he talking about? Well, we don't really know. John never actually says it. Um, and theologians kind of work through deductions and they kind of end up at that it's actually John who's writing the book that is calling himself that. And, and, um, and it kind of raises the question, whether it's John or whether it's someone else, it still raises the question, uh, what, what's John up to by talking about this disciple who Jesus loved? Now, to Australians, um, we could just get on edge about this one pretty quickly, couldn't we? And just go, oh, he's talking himself up, is he? Is that what he's doing? Like there's someone that's loved and other people who are less loved. It's like teacher's pet, right? That's what it is. But that doesn't make sense. And I want to give you a couple of reasons why it doesn't make sense uh, for John to be doing that. If that's what he's doing, why doesn't he name himself? Or name who the disciple is. If, that, if, if it's a status kind of thing, which would be a weird thing to do after what we looked at last week with the washing the disciples' feet, why doesn't he name himself? And the other thing I'd say is that naming someone and giving someone a status because they are a cool person that Jesus loves is kind of runs op- in the opposite direction of what John's been doing the whole way through his gospel. It just doesn't make any sense to think that. Here's, here's what I think. I think when John calls this disciple the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's not saying something about the disciple. He's saying something about Jesus. (laughs) That's what I think is going on. That fits in perfectly with what John has been saying in his gospel. You see it? It, It's it's almost got a sense about like, you want to see something amazing? There's a disciple that Jesus loved. That's amazing. And in some ways, it's true for all the disciples. What an amazing thing that Jesus would be in the midst of all of them and that he would love them. They are all the ones who Jesus loved. But maybe there was something about this one disciple who just couldn't get his head around the fact that Jesus loved him. You see that? And on... I'm really chilled about the fact that, that that could well be John. He just could not get his head around the fact that Jesus loved him and he called himself the disciple that Jesus loved. You know what? So are you. 
You could be called that. In fact, you are called that. The disciple that Jesus loved, the child that Jesus loves. What an amazing thing. In the middle of Jesus being betrayed, the one who Jesus loved, loved by Jesus without saying who it is, leaves the focus on Jesus, doesn't it? Now, folks, if that isn't a shaft of light in the midst of darkness, I don't know what is. That's Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, um, the word says that um, you've been tested, you've been tempted in every way, yet without sin. It says on the strength of that, that we can come to you in every situation and know that you understand us and we can receive grace, mercy and help in our time of need. And uh, just really thankful for that. Uh, you didn't have to do that. You didn't have to leave heaven. You know everything. You could have just said, yeah, I know that. But you, um, you got amongst it with us and you walked it out with us. And um, it's really helpful to us. And uh, we just thank you for that. And specifically, thank you that um, there's forgiveness and grace for mercy and help for everyone from you. God, if there are people here who have uh, knifed other people, flipped on them, um, there's forgiveness for them and I pray that you would uh, be a work spirit and, and cause them to repent. Maybe go and talk to some people that they haven't talked to for a long time and repent to them. There's, uh, there's help for... Uh, those who've been betrayed to Jesus. You get us, you understand us. Your blood speaks a better word over us than the sins of others. And we want to walk in that. We want to ongoingly sit under that. We pray that you would help us with that. Amen.